You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. As Mike said, the handsome, strapping, dark-haired gentleman in front of you is not Eric Barton, and I am not the pastor of the downtown campus, Um, but I'm thankful to be here nonetheless so Eric could go off and enjoy homecoming down at Baylor. You didn't know that's where he was, but that's where he's at. Uh, I only found out because I was looking at Facebook yesterday, and I saw a picture of him tagged there, so I screenshotted it and sent it to him and said, hey, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you make me do this so you can go to homecoming? Um, But I'm glad to be here. Um, I want to start this morning, and and I did this in the first service too, the same way I've started every sermon I've preached from this this stage, this platform, by saying thank you. Because in a million ways, big and small, you guys have been a blessing to my family and to me. This place has has changed the trajectory of our lives. I mean, when we came here, um, I was just about done. I was at my, my wits end and my end of my rope with church and with church folks, and we are really, really fortunate to be here. And some of you don't know because you've been at a Bethel campus since shortly after the ark hit dry ground, so you don't understand just how unique this place is and how unique, um, how uniquely we've been gifted. And I, but I've talked to some of you who have been through it with church folks and church people, and this was sort of the last place for you. This was your last-ditch effort at church, or some of you came back to church by coming to this place because somebody told you this place is different, and I'm here to tell you that it is different, and that Stephanie and I and our kids are are really thankful to be here. And a a big part of the reason it's different, he's not here this morning, I wouldn't say this if he was, um, is because of Eric and and Mike and Matt, the team that, that, that God has assembled here for us, uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There's not anybody quite like him and quite like the team that they've assembled. Um, if you don't know Eric, there's a couple things I can tell you about him for sure. He is not afraid of your sin. Right? He's not afraid of your issues, your foibles, and his two partners in crime are not afraid of your, your sin either, and we are fortunate to have them. So I am honored to stand here in Eric's pulpit, regardless of how uh, unprepared and, and undeserving I know I am to be. But I am, I'm thankful to be here. So, now this morning, I've got two goals, I think, that I want to accomplish. Um, well, maybe three. One is to not go 52 minutes like I've done in the past, because Eric really harasses me about that. And plus, Mike and I were talking about this earlier. If you go 30 minutes, even if you're not very good, people will think, oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> if you go 40 minutes, you got to be good. And if you go 52 minutes, you better be lights out, right? And so I don't think I'm going to be lights out, so we're going to try to keep it down there in that 30-minute range so that you'll think it was okay regardless of whether it was bad or not. So that's one goal. But the second is, um, if you've been here any length of time, you know that every week we come here and we tell the same story. It's the same story over and over again, the good news of the gospel, and the gospel is is the good news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile us to himself and to each other. And every week we hear that, right? And that's what we're going to do today, by God's grace. I don't have anything new to show you. I don't have some new perspective on Romans 4 or some reconsideration of the truth of Romans 4. It's not that. It's just the same story that we tell 
every week, and, and I hope you hear it for the 10,000th time and you're encouraged by it again, or that you hear it for the first time and you believe. That is the goal for me this morning, not to try to tell you something innovative and unique. Now, we're continuing on in our Romans series this morning, and we're, we, we've come to Romans 4. And we'll be in the first 12 verses of, of Romans 4. And this passage is very closely related to and part of the argument that Paul began making at the end of Romans 3 that you heard Eric talk about last week. Now hopefully you'll recall that Romans is really uh, Paul's detailed, though not exhaustive, theology. This is a sketch of Paul's theology. And the theme of Paul's theology is that Romans is about the righteousness of God freely given to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the focus and focal point <clears throat> of Romans. Now, to up to last week, the entire time we had been in Romans was all about the doctrine of, of um, condemnation. Sorry. And in last week, Eric gets to, to, to chapter 3, verse 21, and there is this phrase where Paul says, but now. And so that but now signifies the end of the doctrine of condemnation and the beginning of what we're in now, which is the doctrine of justification. And Eric talked in some detail about this last week, about what this justification is. So I don't want to rehash too much of that here, but justification, just in short, is the process by which our sin is removed and we are declared righteous before a holy God. Right? That is justification. And that second prong, the declaration of our righteousness, is absolutely essential. Right? It's essential because, as we know from what Eric has said in the past in this series, that righteousness is the currency of this kingdom that we've entered into. Right? And we have none of that on our own. So having your sin removed, that's great. That's good news. But it's not all the good news. That's not enough. It's not enough to get you into the kingdom, not enough to connect you to Christ. It is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you and making you righteous um, is what makes you fit for this kingdom. Now, you may remember from last week, Paul or Eric was talking about chapter 3, and he gets to verse 21 and verse 22, and Paul sort of lays down his gauntlet there in verse 21 and 22. And if you remember back to when you were a little kid and you'd be in reading class, this is elementary school level stuff, you'd read a passage and they'd make you pick out what's the main idea. What's the main idea of this passage? What's the passage trying to tell you? Well, Romans 3, 21 and 22, I would submit to you, is the main idea of Romans 3 and 4, at least the latter half of Romans 3 and then of Romans 4. And it goes like this. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is, I think, the main idea of Romans 3 and Romans 4. Paul is arguing that salvation comes to everyone, Jew and Gentile, and it comes to everyone through faith in Jesus, right? This morning, we're going to see Paul use two specific examples from Jewish history to support this sort of central premise that he has. Now, with that sort of as the background, let's kind of dive into Romans 4 and just start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read the entire passage, 
and then I'm going to try to step back through it as well as I can without a seminary degree, and then I'm going to try to give you a couple of points of application, and as I told the first service, my hope, my fervent hope, is that we can do all that while maintaining some level of orthodoxy. So in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, a lot of circumcision talk there, and we're obviously going to have to get into that at some point, uh, but not right now. Um, but I'm going to have to say that word at least 25 more times during the sermon, so be prepared for it. Uh, earmuffs if you must. It's probably too late for earmuffs now, but um, Paul starts off his argument in Romans 4 with a question. And this is Paul's rhetorical method. This is what he does typically to introduce a new argument. Now, you'll recall that we have used this fictitious character that Eric created. Eric created this character, by the way, not me. Um, Murray, as our generic sort of objector to Paul's arguments. Now, I'm not endorsing this practice, but if you have a problem with Murray, you should send your emails to eric at Bethelbible.com and not to me. But the question Paul asks here is about a person, not about Murray. And he says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. Now, some of you may know that I, am by day, am a lawyer. And so, I spend my time, my professional time, thinking about arguments and writing arguments and then occasionally making arguments to a court. And for lawyers, construction and presentation of arguments is what we spend our days doing. We sit around and talk about them over coffee, and over lunch, and over dinner, what would work, what wouldn't work, why won't it work, who would it work with. We spend all this time thinking about and constructing arguments. Now, what every litig litigator knows, I think, what every trial lawyer knows, I think, is that the three most important things to keep in view when you are constructing and crafting an argument are, number one, who is my audience? Right? Who am I talking to? Number two, what am I trying to convince them of? What am I trying to convince them to do 
What am I trying to convince them to believe? Or number three, <clears throat> and number three, what will be the most persuasive argument for convincing this group of people of this thing that I'm trying to get across? So the biggest mistake that we lawyers make, other than just simply talking too much and too long, which we do a lot of, is that we forget who our audience is. Right? So the argument that works very well for your Harvard-educated federal judge probably does not work quite as well with your average lay juror and jury. Right? And, and, and why is that? Well, I mean, sometimes there is a gap in intelligence for sure. Uh, but that's not typically the only reason. The primary reason why is because they have different competencies, different life experiences, and different biases that come because of those life experiences and competencies. So the persuasive argument for a lawyer is the one that best draws on the competencies and the experiences and biases of the audience that you're actually talking to. You don't make an argument to some abstract group of people. You make an argument and you try to convince a group of actual human beings who have an actual set of biases and understandings. Now, Paul understands this incredibly well. right? He's steeped in the law and the prophets, and he describes himself elsewhere as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows the people to whom he is writing. He knows their backgrounds, and he knows that because Abraham is the central figure of Judaism, Abraham is the hallmark, the creator, they would say, of the Jewish culture. It's his covenant with God that creates this group of people. So Paul knows that if I'm going to convince this group of people that I'm writing to of this fact, justification by faith alone, I've got to go to Abraham. Or that is at least the very best argument that I can make. Now, in the latter half of the verse, Paul uses this phrase, our forefather according to the flesh. Now, this is Paul saying, trust me. And you can, trust, you can trust what I'm about to say because you and I are the same. We have common experiences. We have a common background. We have common culture because he is our forefather. This is not me as some um, outsider coming in to speak to you. No, no. I am one of you. And so you can believe what I say when I talk about, when I talk about Abraham. Now, in verse 2, Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul has already said in verse 20 of chapter 3 that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. And here we are in chapter 4, verse 2. Paul is essentially saying, when I said no human being, I really meant no human being. Right? And included in no human beings is Abraham. This is a scandalous thing for Paul to lump Abraham in with everybody else, with the rest of us, because everybody in Jewish culture would have said, no, no, Abraham is different than, than all of us. So now Paul has successfully offended Murray by telling Murray that Abraham was not justified by his works. And as I was thinking about how to try to describe the scandal of this uh, to you, I thought about the fact that perhaps the most scandalous thing you can say in the Mazingo household is that Adrian Beltre was just like all other third basemen. Now, Abraham and Belts are different. They are not mere mortals, and it would have been offensive to Murray to say that Abraham was just like everyone else. 
as it is offensive to me to say that Belts is just like all other third basemen because it is objectively not true. <laughs> now, Paul starts verse 3 with another question. He says, what does the Scripture say? So in verse 1, we see that Paul is going to root this argument that he's about to make in Abraham. And now we know he's about to do it through the Scriptures. He's going to take them to the Scripture to make this argument because, again, Paul knows that the Scriptures matter to these people. Now, he knows that this will add weight to the argument that he's about to make. These people know the Torah. They love the Torah. They love the law. So he's going to go back to where, where they are acclimated to being. Now, just this week, I, I got a stark reminder of, of just how hopelessly out of touch I am with the culture around me, at least the culture in my own home. My five-year-old over here, um, many of you have met her. She is quite something, but she has had the blessing and the curse of growing up with two older siblings. And so she might be more attuned to the sort of cultural norms around her than I would like and maybe then that she should be at four years old. But, but this week, she or five years old, but this week she and I were riding home from the baseball field, and I hear that familiar call from the back seat, Daddy, do you know what? And I said, what is it, baby? And she said, today, I told Ellie and Channing that my dad does not know Old Town Road, and they were like, what the what? He doesn't know Old Town Road? Ellie and Channing apparently could not believe that I did not know Old Town Road is a scandal of epic proportions in the kindergarten classroom of Mrs. Page. Now, putting aside the fact that I'm not sure Ellie and Channing actually said what the what, the point is that Old Town Road is a cultural phenomenon, right? As I understand it, and, and I got a lot of blank stares in the first service. I was heartened to know that most of the folks in there service skews a little older than this one, for sure, but they didn't know uh, what Old Town Road was. Well, Old Town Road is a song, right? And so, um, it, it is a cultural phenomenon, though. Every kid knows it. Now, as I understand it, um, it, it is a collaboration between a rapper I do not know and a country singer that I have tried to forget. <laughs> but, it is, it is, oh, it gets better. It gets better. It is a song with such lines as Cowboy Hat from Gucci and Wranglers on My Booty. Now, as I told a friend this week, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, it ain't, right? But under, amongst the under-15 crowd, as best I can tell, everyone, literally everyone, knows Old Town Road by heart. So what's the point? If you're making an argument to your average elementary school kid that can be rooted in Old Town Road, you have massively increased your powers of persuasion. Right? Why is that? Well, the number one reason is that you're showing them that you can relate. That you understand them, you understand their world, or at least something of it, and that you have this thing in common. And number two is you're arguing to them from something that they know and appreciate and understand. And unlike me, who is hopelessly uncool and culturally unaware, at least of what goes on in Miss Page's uh, kindergarten class, Paul knows his audience, right? These are his people. He knows that they know Torah like kindergartners know Old Town Road. 
So Paul is going to root this argument in Abraham, but also in what the Scriptures say about Abraham. And in the second half of verse 3, Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Eric has said several times over the course of the series that Romans is Paul's very lengthy and detailed exposition of Genesis 15.6. And here is Paul quoting Genesis 15.6. Now, if you recall, in Genesis 15, God came to Abraham in a vision when Abraham was still Abram. And he was still worshiping the moon in Ur of the Chaldeans. In a vision, and he told him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram, of course, has his doubts. He has his doubts about the promises. He is very concerned that he doesn't have an heir. And he says, Eleazar of Damascus is going to be my heir. And God says, No, he's not. You're going to have an heir of your own body, and then you're going to have heirs that are as innumerable as the stars in the sky. And we don't know the timeline of all this, but what we do know is that at some point, Abram becomes Abraham by responding in faith to God's promises. And Paul quotes that happening in Genesis 15, 6. And this is the crux of Paul's argument, right? I said a few minutes ago that Paul's argument in verse 2 was scandalous, and, and this is why. The Jewish writing of the day and the prevailing view of the day was that Abraham was different. That Abraham's righteousness came because of his righteous deeds. And specifically, one righteous deed. So the Jewish view of the day was that you had to read Genesis 15, 6 in conjunction with Genesis 22. What happens in Genesis 22? In Genesis 22, Abraham offers Isaac up on the altar. right? And the view of the day was that those two things came together and God reckoned Abram Abraham as righteous because of those um, two things. Um, and the, the literature, the Jewish literature of the time was, was replete with this idea. And, and I'm going to read you one quote from Maccabees, and I was reminded um, after the first service to, to remind you that, that Maccabees is Jewish writing, it's beautiful and all that, but it's not part of the canon. And there's a reason why it's not part of Scripture. This is not scripture, but I want you to see what the prevailing view of of Abraham was in the day that that we're talking about. Maccabees records this, Remember the deeds of the ancestors, which they did in their generations, and you will receive honor and an everlasting name. Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? So the view was that Genesis 15.6 was not enough to reckon Abraham righteous, that he had to confirm that, in Genesis chapter 22. Now, in Genesis 15, 6, um, there's this word. It says counted. And that word is, is translated sometimes counted or credited or reckoned, depending on the translation that you are using. But this term is an accounting term. And one commentator described it this way. He said, by crediting Abraham's faith as righteousness, God was accepting him as one now fit for relationship with him and choosing not to take account of his sin. Now, I want us to hold on to this this word because it's going to appear again. But what follows in the remainder of this passage will be Paul's support for this central premise that Abraham was justified by faith. Right? Abraham, despite the prevailing belief of the day, was not justified by what um, he had done. 
And Paul, is, he, he's already done this. He points to the Torah to, to support this idea. And he argues that Abraham is really justified by two things. Um, it's first he believes, but that's, that's not the end of justification. There's more to this transaction. Abraham believes God, and God credits him with righteousness as a result of that belief. That is Paul's premise. That's Paul's construction of justification, that it's this two-pronged thing of removing your sin and making you righteous, and both of those are required for justification. Now, in verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to build on this idea that Abraham was justified by faith by setting up this contract contrast between one who works and one who simply believes. And in verse 4, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what's Paul saying? Paul says when you work, what you get is not a gift. When you work, what you get is what you deserve. When you work, what you get is what is coming to you. It's what you're entitled to. But when God justifies the wicked, it's like an employer that pays you when you do not work. Right? That's grace. And I love how Colin Cruz summarized this as, summarizes this in his commentary on this verse. He says, It should perhaps be added that trusting God is definitely not to be regarded as a work performed by the righteous. Rather, it is the only recourse of the wicked. It's the only recourse of the wicked. Now, this notion that God is not simply an employer giving us our just desserts um, would have flown right in the face of Murray. Murray would have pointed back to the Old Testament, to, to Scripture like Exodus 23.7, which says, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. In Proverbs 17, 15, Murray would likely have referenced where um, the writer says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So both of these present to us a God that is incredibly concerned about justice and about rightness. And to go perhaps a step further, both of these passages seem to condemn what Paul says that God is promising. Justification by faith alone without regard to your own merit. As one commentator has described it, God forbids in the law what he in fact does in the gospel. So what has changed? So God's immutable, we all know that, which means he doesn't change. So nothing has changed. God has always been merciful towards the repentant. He's always moved in love towards the repentant. And you can see that all over the Old Testament. And he can do this while maintaining this sense of jealousness for justice because he has offered up a sacrifice. Right? In Romans 3, which Eric was, was in last week, 23 through 26, um, Paul talks about this. He says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might simultaneously be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
So because of this sacrifice of Jesus offered for you and for me, for the wicked, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. He can let us off the hook and still be just because someone has paid the price. Someone has kept up our end of the bargain on our behalf. Now Paul turns to the Psalms and points to David in verses 6 through 8. And he quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2, where David is is lamenting his relationship with Bathsheba and with uh, the hit that he put out on Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And, And this is what Paul says. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So this is David a thousand years before the appearance of Jesus, talking about sins that are covered and which are not counted against the sinner. And Paul links this together with Abraham through this word counted. Both of these uh, passages include this word, the exact same word, with the exact same meaning. And other than just being two proofs of the same point, here's what I think we get from Abraham and David through Genesis 15 and Psalm 32. We get Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness. Right? But for David, his sin is not counted against him. So Paul is showing us two sides of the same coin, these two prongs of justification, the idea that my sin is removed, but that I've been made righteous through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So Sin that we rightly earned is not counted against us. And righteousness that is unearned is counted for us. This is justification in total. Now, I confess I wasn't here last week, um, but I listened to Eric's sermon this morning on on the way to my office, and a a good portion of it, and he he mentions a phrase that we've all heard, and and I already had decided to talk about it, and I think it's worthwhile to mention it again. The phrase you've probably heard is, is that justification is just as if you'd never sinned, but, but this is way better than that. Okay, that's not, that's not the sum total of justification. It is better because when we, are, when we are justified, God recognizes our sinfulness, but he also recognizes our total inability to do anything about it on our own. And what does he do? He acts. He does something. He moves toward us in love and makes a way for us to be declared righteous and puts us in right standing with himself through the sacrifice of his son. Now, I would submit to you that what is left after that takes place is more beautiful than as if we'd never sinned. Right? It's more beautiful because it once was broken. And we now have this this beautiful thing of brokenness and restoration, and it's a picture of the gospel and of grace, and way more beautiful than as if you'd never sinned. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Paul is going to tell us that this justification is unrelated to Abraham's circumcision. He says in verses 9 and 10, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now, 
there's sort of controversy all over the place about Romans, of course, and then how it applies and what it means. Uh, but to be honest, if you accept this as Paul writing Scripture, I think Paul would tell you that this is very simple. Right? Abraham's justification is not linked to his circumcision because Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. It's really that simple. Right? In Genesis 15, we have God declaring Abraham righteous. And then years later, years later, we have Genesis 17 where Abraham is circumcising himself and all the members of his household. So I think from Paul's perspective, it really is that simple. 15 is before 17. Ergo, the justification is totally un, unmoored from the circumcision. And in the beginning of verse 11, Paul is going to close the loop on this issue of Abraham's circumcision from Genesis 17. Because you can probably imagine at this point, Murray is asking himself, so hold on. If uh, right standing before God comes by faith, then what the heck is Abraham doing in Genesis 17? Why is he circumcising himself and all of his household when he's 99 years old? Um, and, and here's how I think Paul answers Murray with, with verse 11. He says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Murray is still thinking, what, what are we doing here? Right? Abraham was 99 years old when he did this. And, and on this point, I think we all have to sympathize with Murray just a little bit. But, but Paul's answer to Murray is that it was not for nothing. But it also was not for salvation. In the latter half of, of verse 11 and then in verse 12, Paul concludes this passage this way. He says, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the, of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, using Genesis 17, and, and, and I think Paul would, would say to Murray, look, the circumcision, it mattered. It's a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, for sure, right? But, and, and this is a huge but, Paul says the circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had before he was circumcised. And that there are two things that are sort of going on here simultaneously, I think, in verse 12, because it's incredibly confusing, but here's what I think is going on. Paul is saying that Abraham is the father of Gentiles who believe, but are not circumcised. And he's the father of the Jews who are circumcised and believe. But, Paul would say, and this would have been massively offensive to Murray and all of his, his friends, Paul would say that Abraham is not the father of those Jews that have been circumcised, but that have not believed. Right? This entire operation is about faith. And Abraham is the father of all who believe and is not the father of those that do not. That is the message of verse 12. So what does all this mean? There are really just two things that I want you to take away from this. And the first is that 15 comes before 17 and 22. Right? Very basic mathematical truth. 
If you didn't know that yet, if you count to 22, 15 is right here, 17 is right here, and 22 is on the end. So 15 comes before 17 and before 22. And the implication of this really basic mathematical truth is massive for you and me. The implication is that when Abraham was justified in Genesis 15, 6, it was before he took the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17 and before he offered Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. Now, Murray recoils at this. He's sure that the law-keeping has earned Abraham right standing before God, but Paul in Genesis 15 say that Murray is wrong. And if you and I were being honest, we agree a little bit with Murray. We very much want to believe that our clean living is, is having some impact on our relationship with God. I'm going to betray my Baptist roots a little bit here. We all want to believe that uh, it matters that I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. Um, none of those things are, three things are true about me, incidentally, I don't think. But um, we all want to believe that that mentality profits us something, right? But that's, that's not the gospel. Thank God that's not the gospel. The gospel says that you are more depraved than you ever dared to believe but you are more loved than you ever dared to hope. And this, this whole thing is not about merit. There is no indication in Scripture as to why God would choose Abraham. What we know about Abraham is that when God called him, he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was very likely a moon worshiper, like most of the folks around him, but God in his sovereignty uses his prerogative and he chooses this Chaldean moon worshiper as his own. This God who is ever-present throughout time, who can see all and knows all, he chose Abraham, and he did so without regard to Abraham's merit. He hadn't done anything that might make him meritorious. God does not say, Abraham, Abram, I've looked down through the corridors of time, and I can see that you're going to be a great guy, and I'd really like to have you on my team. I think you'd be a real asset to Team Jesus. It's, it's, it's not there. Right? We all want to believe it's there because we all want to believe there's something about us that God loves so much that he chose us to be on his team. But that's just not, it's not the case. And if you look at the recorded history of Abraham's life, there's as much or more faithlessness than there is faithfulness. So the notion that somehow he was meritorious just doesn't square with, with the facts in any real way. The second point I want you to remember is that 15 is also before 16 and 21. Another really basic mathematical truth. Abraham is justified by God in 15.6, but that's not the end of Abraham's story. And this, I think, is the encouragement for us. Not only does his justification take place before what some might say were his most triumphant moments of faith, in Genesis 17 and in Genesis 22, but it also takes place before some of Abraham's greatest failures. After God justifies Abraham and declares him righteous, Abraham exhibits frequent faithlessness. Consider the incident with Hagar, where Abraham doubts the very promise that he believed when he was justified. The promise that Eleazar of Damascus would not be his heir, but that he would have an heir of his own body. 
and that his heirs would ultimately be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Despite that promise and his justifying belief in that promise, he takes matters into his own hands with Sarah, ser Sarah's servant Hagar. Or what about the incident with Sarah and Abimelech, where Abraham, out of fear, tells the king, oh no, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And here's the implication for us, I think. Justification does not end this battle that we have with unbelief. Matt frequently says in our Wednesday morning men's group that the problem with us dying to ourselves is that in our flesh we have such a strong inclination to crawl back off the cross. But your endless examination and re-examination of your sin will not profit you anything. Your time is much better spent focused on the cross and on the finished work of Christ there. Beholding the beauty and the brutality of that thing and that act and letting that wash over you. Letting that sit on you. Letting that inform you about the seriousness of your sin, for sure. But also about the lengths that this God will go to to reconcile you to right relationship with him. And that's the invitation to us this morning and every morning to see and to savor this cross and this Jesus. Now, the best description I know of of Jesus comes from a little Bible that we have in our house that we spent a million hours reading to our kids. <clears throat> and it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes Jesus in that book. And I'm going to do my best to get through it without getting too broken up. The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. Um, thank you for your word, for its application to our life, for the concrete reality that you love us and because you do, you've made a way for us to both have our sin removed and to have your righteousness given to us. And I pray that we'll be reminded of that gift and that we'll let that gift sit on us and remind us of, of how much you love us. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.